Hello again, it's Pablo. I'm going to read now um, <clears throat> from part four of the Celtic, Saxon and uh, Viking Wibble. This is the Viking Wibble part. Okay. Let's go straight into it with any of my rambling. But welcome to Pablo's channel once again <laughs> for your edification. So according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the first time... Vikings came to England was in 793 when they raided the monastery at Linda's Farm in Northumbria. They had a reputation as savage, pagan invaders bent on looting, raping and destruction. This was actually only part of their story. Their real legacy in Europe is far more positive and is the consequence of their being sailors colonizers um, colonizers uh, craftsmen farmers businessmen town builders artists and writers raiding and fighting were features of their early search for wealth and living space probably incited by population growth and the pressure on the southern frontiers of Scandinavia, which was being exerted by the people of Central Europe. The movement of people from Scandinavia to the British Isles is a later stage in that remarkable restlessness of the peoples of Europe during the post-Roman and early medieval periods. Scandinavians settled mainly in Eastern Ireland, Northwest Scotland and the North of England. In the northwest of England, the most striking evidence for their presence is of a linguistic nature, place names and dialect. But they bequeathed was very little archaeological or literary material. There is much debate about just how much the Vikings actually did influence the history of the region. After all, we do now all speak English and not Norwegian. Our, institu our institutions are English with a Scandinavian flavour and not the other way around. And our capital city is London and not Oslo or Reykjavik. The Vikings' fearsome reputation, artistic energy and colourful mythology combined with the mysteriousness of their history have traditionally made them attractive both to the scholar and to the dreamer. Wirral has been home to a fascinating example of this interplay between self-delusory myth-making and serious scholarship. All Wirralans know and love Thurstaston Common. It is a beautiful tract of uncultivated land, which the public is free to roam. At its heart there lies a large block of sandstone, standing separate from the surrounding terrain. Nobody could deny that it is an enchanting location where it is possible to forget that one is standing on a tiny remnant of nature in a built-up district. The best time to visit is dusk, in early winter, as the chill air sinks into the hollows and the sky changes from riotous red to steely grey. Nothing may be heard but the rustle of bare branches and the occasional shout of a fox. 
In the gloom, the rain-sculpted rock forms before petrified people and animals. Here is a cathedral of the wild, a chapel of reveries and a womb of wonderings. It is called Four Stone. The 19, during the 19th century, it spurned some glorious nonsense. Sir James Picton, Liverpool antiquarian and businessman, said that it had once been a Viking religious site and that it was a record of Danish, Danish heathendom, heathendom. A, a gigantic rock altar. How far its original shape has been modified, it is impossible to say. But human labour has been largely expended upon it. Philip Sully, a later Wirral historian, continued the theme. <coughs> the great stone of four was reddened with the blood of priests and captives. And Hilda Gamlin uh, concluded the stone was probably raised by the Danes to commemorate the great battle of Brunnenburg. The battle of Brunnenburg is discussed in detail in Appendix 2. We will look into that. Their fantasies were encouraged by misinterpreting the name Fistaston to mean village of four stone um, instead of the correct but prosaic Forstein's farm. Even if Forstein himself was a first generation Norse settler, he would have been Norwegian from Ireland, not a Dane. He was unlikely to have been interested in human sacrifice as he would have been a Christian. Even if he did have a secret passion for emoliating his neighbours. Clerical or lay, he would doubtless have been too busy cultivating his land to be able to indulge his anti-social hobby. Indeed, the supposed Rock of Four itself has a much more mundane origin. It is probably a portion of poorer quality sandstone, which 19th century builders, who must have been free to cut sandstone from the common land, have left behind. We have a picture here of Four Stone in July 2002. A beautiful sandstone feature on Fristaston Common. Was it a Viking sacrificial altar or the result of modern quarrying? We are fortunate now to be able to review the history of Viking women in the light of some excellent and innovatory work which has been carried out by a group of Viking scholars led by exiled Wirilin <laughs> Stephen Harding. It consists of a unique combination of scholarly historical analysis, a sympathetic attention to local Viking mythologies and scientific research related to Professor Harding's professional specialism in biological science. The ensuing discussion is based mainly on Harding's book, Ingemund's Saga, and the one to which he contributed, Will and its Viking Heritage. The story begins with the expulsion of the Norwegian or Norse people from Dublin in AD 902. It is told in an Irish annal and partially supported by another one from Wales. This makes it the only Norse settlement in England which is described in writing. Wirral is not mentioned by name, but the Irish annal states that the leader of the group of Scandinavians 
was called Hing- Hingamund or Ingamund. That's a H-I-N-G-A-M-U-N-D or I-N-G-I-M-U-N-D. First of all, he attempted to settle in Anglesey, but was ejected. So he, so he applied to Athelfled, Queen of the Saxons in Mercia, and was allowed to settle on some land near Chester, and he stayed there for, some, for, for a long time. Wirral's proximity to Chester, combined with its numerous Scandinavian place names, tells us that this was a district in which Ingenmund and his people settled. The Irish Annal goes on to say that Ingenmund later decided to capture Cheshire itself, but was beaten back by the Saxons. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle supports this by saying that Athelfledar, that's a A E T H E L F L A E D A, Athelfledar. Reinforced the city walls in 1907. So no, 907. Actual Norse colonisation of Wivel might have taken longer than is implied by the records. Margaret Jelling proposes that the manors near Chester were taken over by the first wave of Norse overlords who preserved the settlement's English names. The way was then open for more colonists to come to the peninsula via the port of Mells. Later arrivals arrived, the later arrivals settled on the less desirable or marginal areas of North Wirral. They bought waste and boggy land into cultivation and revitalised Mells itself, giving it the name by which we now know it. It is certainly difficult to imagine an entire population arriving with Ingemund at the same time, especially when we tried to visualise him sailing first to Anglesey, then to Chester, and then spreading onto the Wirral Peninsula, with a huge following of men, women and children constantly in tow in town. It is easy to picture him arriving with one or two ships manned by his closer supporters and some community leaders and then sending them back to Ireland for the rest of the people once the way had been open for them. All of the evidence for the importance of the Norse colonisation of women, most apparently persuasive, is of the linguistic variety. There are 600 possible examples of Norse names and women. Townships, small and lost settlements, field and road names. In Ingemund's saga, Professor Harding says, Nowhere else in the UK is there such a density in such a small area. In addition to Mel's, there are the following names which are either wholly, wholly Norse or contain Norse elements or other evidence of Norse infants. Birkenhead, Caldy, Clawton, Frankby, Gayton, Greasby, Hargrave, Irby, Larton, Mollington, Tolold, Mollington Tolold. Morton, Mortoncombe, Lingham, Pensby, Raby, Storton, Fingwall, Thestaston, Tranmere, West Kirby, Whitby, and Woodchurch. In addition, there are five names of Irish origin. Three are still in use Arrow, 
not two of them, and this guy, and two have been lost. Nookin, Nook, Nookin, that's a K-N-U-C-K-Y-N, Nookin in Irby, and Nookin, possibly Calvi Hill, in the parish of West Kirby. They reflect the fact that <clears throat> even though the immigrants were Norwegians, their most recent home had been an island, <clears throat> and that some of them were Irish speakers. The fact that Irby means Irish men's farm endorses this conclusion. Some of the Norse settlements have not survived into modern times. Their former existence was revealed only by documentary evidence and field notes. They were Haby, H-A-B-Y, in Barston. Hescaby, uh, or Escaby, in Bidston. Kiln Walby, in Overchurch Upton, Stromby in Fastaston, Sillaby in Great Sugall, and Warmby in Heswall. In addition to the settlement names, there are numerous names of fields and other smaller locations which contain classic Norse elements. There are 96 rakes from Rackland, um, sorry, from Rack Lane, sorry, 50 cars, that's two hours. From Kajar, K-J-A-R, Marsh, 37 intakes from Intac, Enclosure, uh, 24 homes from Homer, or home, uh, home with an R, uh, Island and Marshy or Flooded Ground, and 11 slacks from Slacky, Hollows or Shallow Valleys. Harding has also pinpointed some special sites. Both Irby and Thornton Hugh contain fields with the name Hesketh, it means horse track, from Hestur, H-E-S-T-U-R, horse, and Skef, Skif, uh, S-K-E-I-T-H, track. Wallacey has a rocky output called the Clinis, that's C-L-Y-N-S-S-E, from Clint, that's K-L-I-N-T, Projecting rock, it means. Um, and Bromber had areas called wood clints and the clints with the same derivation. The full name, the, sorry, the full list of names would seem to be proof that Wirral was both colonised and radically changed by the Norse settlers from Ireland. Linguistic evidence on its own, however, contains some inherent ambiguities. Place names imply that the Norse language was once predominant. But there are few, if any, signs of its legacy in current speech. Modern Wirralians speak with an accent which is shared with subtle variations by the people of Liverpool, South West Lancashire, Chester and the North Wales coast, between Sealand and Abergay. The classic form of the accent grew up, grew up in Liverpool and is called Scouse. Ironically, even though the word Scouse itself was introduced to Liverpool by the 19th century Scandinavian sailors from Lapscouse, that's L-A-P-S-K-A-U-S, a stew made from leftover meat, the dialect owes nothing to Old, old North. It is a result of the mixing of the speech of the city's two largest 19th century immigrant communities, the Welsh and the Irish with the native Lancashire accent and perhaps a little Scots. 
It is a metropolitan accent which has gradually superseded other local accents within Liverpool's hinterland. London's accent, Cockney, has followed a similar course in southeast England. It's not clear exactly how Wirralins spoke before the expansion of Liverpool, but a few available clues lead this author to the tentative conclusion that a local accent contained elements which were similar to the speech of the West Midlands. If this was so, it would indicate that it was based on the Mercian dialect of Anglo-Saxon and not Norse. Clearly, Norse words had entered the English language, but their former and current use does not necessarily imply that the Scandinavians were ever the dominant linguistic, cultural or political group. Despite the fact that Britain has not been colonised by Indians, there are many words in modern English which derive from Indian languages, e.g. punch, khaki, shampoo, pundit, bungalow, canoe and puka. The truth is that they are loan words. They were adopted in order to describe things which formerly were unheard of or whose previous titles were inadequate. <coughs> the power is not completely accurate, but it illustrates the nature of the phenomenon. It is possible, therefore, not every Wirral location with a Norse name was given it by an actual Viking. The names could have been awarded centuries after the Norse settlement by people who spoke English and were of largely Anglo-Saxon ancestry. Their forebears had simply adopted the Norse words to describe features like marshes and other marginal lands which were coming into greater use as a consequence of improvements in agriculture. West Kirby is a possible classic Norse settlement. It has a namesake in Iceland, Vestri Kirkjabay. That's uh, V-E-S-T-R-I-K-I-R-K-J-U-B-A-E-R. Its church is dedicated to St. Bridget of Ireland and is home to a small collection of Viking stonework. Table 2 on page 58 has a list of field names from the township and therefore shows the relative importance of Norse, Norse words in the district. Only three out of the 30 names, 10%, uh, flat, rugs and slack have Norse origins. The rest are old, middle and modern English words. One field is called sandhills. An English term has been used in preference to the Norse word mel, or mel, M-E-L-R, which was used in creating the name of the adjoining, adjoining township, Little Mel's. This shows, how, this shows us how Norse had fallen into disuse. Their names might contain Norse elements, but they are classic examples of loan words and are clearly not evidence of Viking settlement. In order to lend more substance to the argument, Table 3 on page 60 summarises the West Kirby analysis together with that of 10 more townships. Two more with Norse names from North Will three with Anglo-Saxon names from North Will, one with a Norse name at the southern end, three from the southern end with an Anglo-Saxon name, and one from outside Will altogether. For the sake of argument, the table accepts two types of words whose status is ambiguous, but are assumed to be evidence of Norse influence. 
elements like Dale, of which there are four in Fingwall, one in Oxton, and two in Whitby, and Gate, there's one in Whit- Whitby, which could have come either from Anglo-Saxon or Norse originals, and words with Norse roots, but which were obviously now current in modern English. Crook, crooked, and cross. In addition, repetitions of single words, which are described in divisions of the same geographical feature, e.g. the home, that's H-O-L-M, home bridge, lower home, top home, five-acre home in Prenton, have been recorded as separate examples. Four personal names are taken as Norse field name elements. Arnie, A-R-N-I, in Oxton. Ufaldi, U-F-A-L-D-I, in Sorgal Massey. Ingriff, in Shotwick. And Reynolds, in Whitby. The two, the last two, are problematic. Ingriff could be either Danish or Norwegian, and Reynolds is broadly Germanic. And could have come to England with the Normans. The, the other words, car, home, intake, rake and slack, are, as we have seen, Norse topographical words which were adopted by English speakers. We are gaining the impression that it is dangerous to use local names along alone as evidence of a large Scandinavian presence in Will. Indeed, if we pursue our questions about the validity of the list of Norse words to their logical conclusion, we will even begin to doubt that even that any Scandinavian people ever set foot on the peninsula at all. The entire collection of 600 Norse names could simply be the result of loaning. Table 3 reveals that Norse field names are in the minority in every township. In North Wirral, there is little correlation between whether the settlement has a Norse name and its proportion of Norse field names. For example, Anglo-Saxon Oxton has the second highest proportion of Norse names. North, West Kirby, has the next to lowest. We must conclude that the language from which the name to the township is derived need not be an indication of the ethnicity of the people who live there. Furthermore, the use of Norse, Norse words within a township must owe more to the nature of the local landscape than to the number of Norse people dwelling within it. Thus the boggy lands of the North Wirral coastal plain and the valleys of the rivers Fender and Burkett have attracted relatively intensive use of the words home, H-O-L-N-R and Kajar, K-J-A-R while the widespread practice during the Middle Ages and early modern period of bringing waste ground into cultivation and enclosing the former open fields have ensured that the elements intact that's I-N-N-T-A-K and flat with an R at the end can be found virtually everywhere. Indeed, both the Norse names in Malpass on the Cheshire Plain, Intake and Dunn's Flat, such as Tutis, a long way, a long way from any Viking settlement, contain these elements. At this point in discussion, we might feel inclined to decide that Scandinavian settlers did not, after all, make a large impact on women. But let us not be so hasty. To do so would turn the, the Wirral Vikings into ghosts in the machine. 
or spirits who die from a thousand definitions. It must be remembered that the Viking scholars have also used archaeological and literary evidence to support their argument for the former significance of the Scandinavians in Wirral. In looking at the origins of local place names, we should draw attention to the complex way in which our language has evolved. It has borrowed words from a range of roots. Our field names are fascinating and attractive because they are the result of over a thousand years of human relationships with the landscape. Unfortunately, however, they have not so far furnished us with conclusive proof that the Scandinavian settlers were numerous. Table 3 does, however, illustrate some subtle trends. South Wirral settlements with Anglo-Saxon names have small proportions of Norsefield names. This might be due to the failure of the local topography to track the classic elements, Kajar and Ho, which are associated with marshy ground, but also correlates with an argument which has been propounded by most of the Wirral Viking scholars in the last 50 years that most of Wivell's Scandinavian immigrants settled at the northern end of the peninsula and formed an enclave which was quite distinct from Anglo-Saxon southern Wivell. They have identified a boundary between the two parts of the peninsula. Its chief indicators are the name Raby from Old Norse Raby, Raby, Border Village, R-A-B-Y-R, Border Village, and the natural features such as Dibbonsdale and Prospect and Scorton Hills, along which it is likely to have run. To the south of the border, in Bromborough, there were two fascinating names. Gremotland, G-R-E-M-O-T-E-L-A-N-D, recorded in 1330, which means place of meeting under the truce, and Laf. Gestfeld, and that's L-A-T-H-E-G-E-S-T-F-E-L-D, recorded in 1412, which means unwelcome guest field. They speak of activities which would have occurred around the frontier between Norse and Anglo-Saxon people and will. Doomsday Book, see App- uh, Appendix 3 for all will doomsday entries, refers indirectly to the existence of Wirral Norse enclave. It lists the properties of the Norman barons who had come to England with William the Conqueror. Robert of Woodland's Wirral properties, apart from Great and Little and Bollington, lay north of the Raby boundary. They were in a compact parcel, whereas in the rest of Wirral, Lord's properties were dispersed. In the words of John Dodgson, it looks as though the Norse enclave and will were so politically distinctive that it justified a special feudal administration. He goes on to say that a document of 1182 refers to Caldi Hundred. Caldi Hundred. C-A-L-D-E-I-H-U-N-D-R-E-D-U-N. Implying that even by the time it was still a separate administrative unit, based on the larger hundred of will, the fact that it had the Anglo-Saxon title of 100 instead of the Norse weapon take is, however, significant. Is, however, significant. The former area of Norse home rule had become an English unit of local government. 
The North Enclave would effectively have been a mini-state from its own public meeting place at Thing Wall from Thing Voller, uh, Thing and then V-O-L-L-R, field where an assembly met, or meeting place, <coughs> and the port at Mel's. Notable in the collection of artefacts from the Mel's shore is a comparative lack of 19th century coins. The port must have been suffering from a trade recession just before the Vikings arrived. Offa's Dyke had claimed the Welsh shore of the Diestri as English territory. Little harbours between Flint and Point of Air might have stolen some of Mel's trade. Alternatively, Chester itself might simply have been acting as Mercia's northwestern trade outlet, making Mel superfluous. There are numerous coins from the 10th and 11th centuries from places such as Canterbury, Chester, Shrewsbury, Winchester and York. The implied change suggests that the Vikings revitalised Mels and were able to exploit its position as a marginal and neutral site on the coast of the Irish Sea in order to trade with a wide area. As stated above, Chester was re-fortified by the Queen of Mercia in 907. It was emphatically an Anglo-Saxon city and port. Mel's, however, lay in the Wibble Norse enclave and operated outside Chester's orbit. Perhaps it stole also Chester's trade. As well as the coins, there are numerous other items from the Viking era, including an impressive collection of distinctly Irish Norse bronze ring-headed pins. Here was a small but prosperous settlement whose wealth must have come from a trade and not, an, not its agriculture. However, but again, however, there is no concrete evidence that the town was inhabited either completely or substantially by Scandinavians. It was certainly named by them, but its Viking objects could just be the result of its role as a centre of trade with the Irish Sea province. Its residents could have been British, Anglo-Saxon, or a mixture of the two groups with little or no Viking presence at all. Ironically, for the people who are popularly imagined as evil, pagan marauders, the most visible legacy of the Wirral Vikings is a collection of stone crosses. No complete standing cross has ever been found, but various pieces of heads and shafts have been discovered at Thilbury, West Kirby, Wallasey, Bromborough and Neston. Some of the fragments have clearly been broken and reshaped in order to become building blocks in later structures. Scrutiny of the Hillbury Cross reveals more about their original appearance. It has a small hole in its centre which was designed to house a coloured bead. Its intricately carved patterns would have been painted red, blue and yellow. W.C. Collingwood asserted that the West Kirby examples would have been made around 1030. He said that by that time the Scandinavian population would have been both stable and prosperous enough to invest money in such luxurious statements about their faith and further suggested that the individuals who had erected, who, who had them erected wished to be in the fashion and that demand for the crosses was possibly created by the supply. The craftsmen probably lived in Chester 
and executed his carvings in a workshop connected to the Collegiate Church of St. John. Collingwood went on to observe that one of the pieces had been bungled and said that this was evidence of the mason having come to West Kirby in order to make the cross on the site. He might have been anxious to finish early and rushed the job or gone home and left one of his less experienced assistants to complete it. We have a picture here of pre-Norman crossheads from West Kirby. All of Wirral's Viking crosses could be viewed as examples of conspicuous consumption. Statements by a Scandinavian social elite that they had sufficient wealth and importance to justify the erection of striking works of art. Investment in crosses might have accompanied even greater expenditure on church or domestic buildings. Peace and prosperity had arrived. Additionally, the Vikings could have been telling their Anglo-Saxon neighbours that they were here to stay and that this was their land. They particularly used Christian symbols in order to emphasise that they were civilised and therefore just as worthy as the Anglo-Saxons, not only to settle here, but politically to rule and economically to dominate the people who lived within their North Wirral mini-state. Later on in the 10th century, vertical crosses seem to have gone out of fashion and were replaced by hogbacks. These are odd-looking recumbent tombstones which have central ridges with apparent drops of running water running with apparent drops of water running down their vertical sides. The drops originally represented roofing tiles and the complete carvings were meant to depict houses. Collingwood says this is about the West Kirby example. Some important person had died and the memorial was put in the hands of an artificer who was hardly a professional monumental mason but had seen hogbacks in Cumbria and he did his best. By the 12th century, hogbacks had fallen out of fashion and being replaced by flat slabs which had crosses carved upon them. We have a picture here of pre-Norman sculptured stones from West Kirby. About all Wibble's Viking stonework, J.D. Bullock, that B-U apostrophe block, said this, these stones, whether today they are preserved in museums or exposed to the weather, cared for or piled in some neglected corner of a church were the memorials and testimonies of men and these were our ancestors. Science is beginning to enable us to discover to what extent the Vikings were really the ancestors of modern Wirralians. It's fortunate that Professor Stephen Harding is three things, a Wirralian, a local historian and a scientist. A result of his first two attributes the important subject of Viking will, which had lain dormant for half a century, has been revived and it is hoped that analysis, debate and popular interest will continue to flourish. But due to this latter qualification, as a bioscientist, we are beginning to gorge the strength of the genetic inheritance up from the Vikings. I've got a picture of Hogback Tombstone from West Kirby. Professor Harding was able to link his research 
with wider surveys which were being carried out by scientists from the University of London and which were later described in the BBC television series Blood of the Vikings. During 2001, volunteers in Wirral and South West Lancashire were asked to give samples of their DNA. They were all men whose paternal grandfathers had come from the local area. Samples were taken from the cells in their cheek linings by mouth swabs and analysed by means of PCR technology in Professor David Goldstein's laboratory at the University of London. The researchers were looking for two types of Y chromosome, the so-called plus 2.47 and plus 3.65. These are carried by 38% and 20% respectively of men in modern Norway. They are comparatively rare in men from Denmark and North Germany, and virtually absent amongst Welshmen. So they are good indicators of Scandinavian ancestry. The Y chromosome is passed from father to son, and is therefore a link with an ancestor of some 40 generations ago. But an individual's DNA analysis will not necessarily reveal a Viking's ancestor. The research is only meaningful when performed on populations. Thus, some 300 samples were assessed and the results have been published. In Harden's works, show a strong correlation of the genetic and place name maps. The North Wirral data appears statistically similar to the other Scandinavian place name rich areas of South Wirral and South West and West Lancashire but completely different from North Wales, and significantly mid-Cheshire. Geographically, with their closeness to Wales, South West Lanx, and particularly Wirral, might be expected to be far more Celtic than they actually are, indeed, to be like mid-Cheshire. Strong Viking settlements may appear to adequately explain the difference. So although the genetic results by themselves are not conclusive proof of Vikings, their combination with the place name Philological evidence is compelling. Um, that's yeah, phil philological. The only other genetic demonstrations of Viking infants in UK have been the Scottish Isles, Isle of Man and the North Lakes, areas which have a strong Celtic rather than German Germanic backgrounds, which makes Vikings easier to detect. No Vikings have, for example, been detected in York. This is not because there aren't any, it is just a technique as it stands can't pick them out. So, non-scientists were perhaps a little disappointed with the results of this survey. Not because they failed to reveal Viking ancestry, but because a more definite story cannot yet be told. Historians will not be surprised at the outcome. The truth about the past is never easy to discover. Thankfully, the movements, motivations and interrelationships of people are far too complex and rich to yield simplistic definitions and assertions. We remain both humble and sceptical, being constantly aware of the ambiguities of all our evidence and allied to the weaknesses in every argument. Of one thing there can be no doubt, more work is needed. We look forward to the next stage in the genetic survey which will attempt to take samples from people whose ancestors lived in the chosen areas prior to 
1,600 of whose surnames will have been identified as being strongly local. The results will undoubtedly open up more avenues of inquiry and increase our understanding of local population and family history. By the middle of the 11th century, Wirral had been settled by two important groups of Germanic people. The Anglo-Saxons gave the peninsula its name and created most of the settlements. The Viking contribution to the history of the district was significant but is yet to be fully understood. We have seen that linguistic evidence alone cannot prove that there were large numbers of Scandinavian settlers, but when it is combined with the literary and archaeological evidence, we must conclude that, at the very least, their impact on women was second in importance to that of the Anglo-Saxons. <coughs> there is a good case for believing in the existence of a Norse mini-state in North Wales, and the archaeological evidence shows that some people must have been prosperous and wanted to make it clear that they were here to stay. But ultimately, it is an inescapable fact that Will became English. Examples of Norseness appear in Will's sources, possibly as late as the 16th century. But in all important respects, the peninsula owed more to its Anglo-Saxon heritage than that bequeathed by the Vikings. John Dodgson's explanation of the failure of the Celts to hold on to Cheshire in the face of the Anglo-Saxon invasion because of their weak political institutions seemed apposite. The reverse situation pertained when the Vikings arrived. Anglo-Saxon Mercia stood its ground, forcing the Vikings to stay larger within an agreed pocket in northern world. Within this pocket, they were able to dominate the population. They need not have even been numerically superior, but just have become the political elite. As a result, perhaps for a period of just 100 years, the language and culture of North Wirral would have had a strong Norse flavour, but ultimately for the simple, pragmatic reason that such a small state was unsustainable, it was absorbed into the wider and stronger English nation. It should be remembered that, despite their apparent aggressive sense of identity. This is what happened to North colonies all over Europe, notably in Russia and in France. It is the invasion of England by the descendants of the latter colony which began the period which we call the Middle Ages and is the first subject in our next chapter. And there you go. And that was the... Uh, Viking Willow. Hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you enjoyed the background sound. Hope you joined me to the next chapter, chapter four, on Medieval Wirral, 1066 to 1500. Bye for now, chaps.